want to thank you for those of you who helped yesterday at the community cookout and for those of you who prayed and certainly could not have done what we did without you. And, and I was especially excited to see several of our members uh, going around and, and developing relationships and uh, uh, conversing with people who were our guests. And uh, I pray that as we continue to think about this and pray about it and follow up on some of these people that that uh, God would use this to, to reach out some of the people in our area. Maybe you know, there are some people in our area who just don't know a good place that they can come where they can trust uh, that the Word of God is going to be preached and that the people are going to be genuine. And uh, you know, an event like this is a good opportunity for them to get to see real faces instead of just see a building. And so I'm thankful for your help and appreciate uh, all the work that you put into to yesterday. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. God has been leading Israel into a place of difficulty, as we have been learning, in order to evaluate the quality of their faith and character, what the Bible calls testing. And this was surprisingly the very best thing that He could do for them, to bring them to a place of difficulty. Because in that difficulty, God was teaching them how they could depend on Him and that they must depend on Him. And you know, God often humbles us as well through difficulty in order that we would trust Him. And He humbles us by removing the natural props and support upon which we we depend. And then He drives us to a place where we are coming back to Him who alone can provide the strength that we need to survive and to continue. Ultimately, God leads us into difficulty so that we would value His Word more than His gifts. I mean, everybody loves to receive gifts. Everybody loves to receive gifts from God. But God wants us to value Him personally over His gifts. You see, when when God brings us to a place where we are without something that we want or without something that we even need like Israel was with food and water, it's a good thing because it causes us to turn to God. And so Christian, don't let struggle drive you away from God. Recognize that struggle is a grace of God. It helps you to come to a place where you recognize your dependence upon Him, your need to be humble before Him. Do you realize that the worst thing that God could ever do to you is not to bring trouble into your life and to make your life difficult? In Romans 1, God sends the worst form of judgment on humanity when He says, I will give you over to the lusts of your own flesh. You see, He's actually giving them what they, what they want most. They want the lust of their flesh. And so God, in a form of judgment, says, I'm letting you go into the very sin that you want. See, the worst thing that God could ever do to you is to give you everything that you always wanted. Friends, God is good to withhold things from us that we think we need so that we can come to a place where we learn that having God is enough. The beauty of God's 
loving means of testing us, of bringing about difficulty, is that the axe of struggle is what God wields in order to cut down the tree of self-sufficiency that we have. We are often sufficient in ourselves. We, we don't want God a part of our life unless He's going to give us gifts. But God lovingly takes a, an axe to the root of that and says, no, you need to depend upon Me. And that is a loving thing for God to do. But there's more. Not only does God humble us through testing, which is our greatest good, in order to cause us to depend on Him and to cause us to value His Word more than His gifts, but also when God humbles us, He does so, and here's the greatest principle that we can learn, He does so without abandoning us. For Israel, He provided the exact amount of food that they needed to survive. Deuteronomy 8.4 tells us that He caused even their clothes and their shoes not to wear out for 40 years. Wouldn't that be amazing? And He also gave them physical protection and physical strength in order to endure this 40-year wilderness trip. And we've seen that even when Israel came to a place where they were without water or without food or threatened by enemies, that God was always there in a dynamic way. So no matter what challenge you face in life, God is using it for your good if you are a Christian. God is using it for your good. He is working to purify you. And even in the severest forms of trial, even the, the worst trial you could ever face in this life, God does not abandon His children. Now we come to chapter 18 this morning, which is a transitional chapter in the book of Exodus. When we began our study in the book of Exodus a couple months ago, I mentioned that the theme of the book is that God delivers His people so that they will worship Him. So what we ought to see in this book and how Moses lays it out is that the first part of the book, chapters 1-17, through 17, is God delivering His people. Remember, at the beginning of the book, they're under the oppression of Egypt and it doesn't seem like there's any hope for them. And in fact, all the baby boys are being killed, but God saves one. He spares one specific boy, Moses. And then Moses is raised in Pharaoh's court and then he fears Pharaoh because Pharaoh finds out that he kills one of the Egyptians. Pharaoh flee, or Moses flees for 40 years. And then God calls Moses to go back and deliver Israel out of Egypt. So Moses is the man whom God uses to, to deliver Israel from Egypt. So chapters 1-17, through 17, God delivers His people. Chapters 19-40 through 40 really are that second part, that God delivers them not just so that they can have a good time, they can be free from all their struggle. What does He deliver them to do? He delivers them to worship Him. And that's what we're going to see in chapters 19 through, 20, 19 through 40. In chapter 20, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. This is God telling Israel how they are supposed to worship Him. So I didn't just deliver you for no reason. I delivered you so that you would worship Me. And so here in chapter 18, we have a transitional chapter because it actually does both. It looks back to what God has done and it looks forward to, to how God is going to use an established leadership to direct this nation. So let me read our passage for us this morning and then we'll, we'll look at each section together. Chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. 
Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom. For Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The other was named Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as the judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people came to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me. And I judge between a man and his neighbor, and I make known the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God, And then teach them the statutes and the laws and make them known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able uh, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place them over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute that they will bring to you but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And they judged the people at all times. The difficult dispute, they would bring to Moses. But every minor dispute, they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way into his own land. God is continuing to make His name known, and He does that in two ways in this passage. First, through His powerful works. He reminds 
his people about his powerful works. This is going to be seen specifically as Moses speaks to his father-in-law Jethro. And then secondly, God makes his name known by bringing about change through faithful, God-fearing leaders. God brings about God makes his name name known by bringing about change through faithful, God-fearing leaders. So first, God makes his name known through his powerful works, verses 1 through 12. God makes his name known through his powerful works. In verses 1 through 4, Moses reunites with his family. Apparently, Zipporah, his wife, remember she was from Midian. Moses had gone there for 40 years to kind of hide out so that he wouldn't get killed by the Pharaoh who was seeking him. He marries this woman and he has two sons with her. And apparently, instead of bringing her back, he may have brought her back to Egypt when he goes to deliver Israel, but at some point he sends her back to her dad's house. Not, not because it was a divorce of any kind, but Moses was sending her back to protect her and the two boys because he knows he was getting into dangerous territory, standing up toe-to-toe with the king of Egypt, the greatest king of any empire at that time. And so we learn a little bit about Moses' two sons here in chapter 17. The one is... is um, um, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Sorry about that. The one is named uh, Gershom, which means sojourner in a foreign land, verse 3. And then Eleazar, in verse 4, means the God of my Father who helps. The God of my help. And so we learn a little about about Moses' immediate family. And so apparently Jethro uses that as a means or a reason to come and to talk to Moses. This passage is not about Moses' family. It's primarily about Moses' father-in-law. And, and here in verses 5-12, through 12, we see that Jethro responds to the works of the Lord, and I believe with genuine faith. This, that this is what we're seeing here, a genuine conversion to saving faith. And I believe Moses records this for us so that we can see that a pagan Gentile, a Midianite, this man Jethro, is actually converted to genuine saving faith. And there are several reasons why I think that. First, Jethro was an unbeliever. In verse 1, he was the priest of Midian. The priest of Midian. So not only did he believe in the false gods that the Midianites served, but he also was a leader in, in serving these false gods. So, Jethro was an unbeliever. And yet, Jethro heard about the works of God, which is what is required of every person who's going to genuinely be converted to saving faith. They need to hear about what God has done. Jethro heard some things. He had heard some news. Obviously, he had some concern because his son-in-law is over there and and maybe as these Egyptian uh, merchants and travelers are coming by near Midian, he would find out, hey, what's going on in Egypt? And they would tell him about the plagues that had come on Pharaoh and how God had really brought Pharaoh to his knees. And so he would, he would learn of this news, but, but that wasn't enough to convert Jethro. He needed to actually hear the message of truth. He needed to hear about what God had promised and then respond to it. And that, I think, is what Moses is going to do here in, in the next several verses. In verses 7 and 8, Moses explains the Gospel to him. In verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and kissed him and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for 
Israel's sake, all the hardships that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord delivered them. Now, do you think Moses knew that Jethro needed to turn to faith in God? Of course he did. So he's likely to share these events with the goal of seeing Jethro converted to genuine saving faith in God. And notice at the end of verse 8, he doesn't leave out the difficulties. It says, that, and all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey. Sometimes when we want to seek someone converted to saving faith, we leave out the hardships. We only highlight the good things about God. We don't talk about the reality of sin, the reality of hell, and the fact that God is going to punish those who, who have not turned to Him. You know, because we want people to accept our message. And so we leave out the difficult parts. But yet, Moses doesn't. He talked about all the hardships that Israel has faced. And I would suggest that if we leave out the reality of sin and hell in our presentation of the Gospel, if we leave off the demand that God has for believers to take up their cross daily and follow Him, can I suggest to you that we have altered the Gospel? That we're actually preaching a different Gospel? To which Paul would say, let that person be accursed. Anyone who comes to you with another Gospel other than the one that you have heard that's been handed down to you from the from the apostles through the scriptures and let that person be accursed and by the way i when we speak when we fail to speak of sin and hell we miss out on being able to highlight god's grace that's why the gospel is so beautiful because god rescues us from something that we deserve right if you never tell anybody that their sin requires that it be paid for in an eternal hell, then you can't highlight the fact that Jesus came to rescue them from that just condemnation. That actually highlights God's grace, does it not? Like That's why we praise God so often for His grace. Because He's rescued us from something that we deserve. We deserve to pay for our sins. And so Moses doesn't leave off the hardships that befell them. In verses 9-12, through 12, Jethro was converted to saving faith and we see several reasons for that. Number one, he found joy in God's deliverance of Israel. Verse 9, he re- after Moses tells him all these things, Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro has been on a journey toward God in the sense that he has heard about what God has done, but he hasn't trusted in Him. And now he hears in detail what God has done for Israel and for Moses specifically. And he recognizes that this is the true and living God. He finds joy in God's deliverance. Verse 10, he praises God. He says, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. It wasn't just that he recognized that God delivered them, but he praised God for delivering them. And then notice verse 11, probably the most significant verse when it comes to understanding his conversion. Verse 11, he confesses his confidence in God's rule. He confesses his confidence in God's rule. Verse 11, now I know. That is, now that I've heard what you said, Moses, I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now I know. Previously, 
Jethro saying, I was unconvinced that the Lord was greater than all the gods. But now that I've heard what He's done by delivering Israel from their struggles and doing it in a powerful way, I can put my confidence in the God of all gods. And He is greater than all the gods. And part of the way that God proves that He is the God of all gods is through His victory at the end of verse 11. Indeed, it was proven that He was he is greater than all the gods. It was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. It was proven by the pride of Egypt. God even controlled how they would respond. And this is the kind of response that God is looking for from a person who has not trusted in Him. This is the kind of response that God was expecting from this great, these great acts that He was doing in Egypt. Remember, in, in Exodus we saw several times I am bringing about these plagues and I'm going to deliver you through the Red Sea so that Egypt will know that I am the Lord. And then he would also say in other places, I'm doing this so that Israel will know that God is the Lord. Well, one of the results of God's powerful work works was also so that the rest of the world would know. People, including people like Jethro, who's a part of the rest of the world. He's not a part of Egypt or Israel. He's a part of Midian. And yet he would learn from God's great works that God is the Lord. God used the grandest stage in all the earth going up head to head against the most powerful king in the known world. That was Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When Jethro heard of these things and how God brought this great king to his knees, killing even Pharaoh's own son, Jethro turned found joy in God's deliverance of Israel, praised God, confessed his confidence in God's rule, and in verse 12, he sacrificed to God. Then Jethro's, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. So this is not, I'm going to just kill an animal so that we can eat. This is, to kill an animal and bring it before Aaron who would eventually be the priest of Israel. Now remember, this is before the, the law has been established fully, but sacrifices were being made prior to that. And the burnt offering specifically was designed as an expression of faith. It was to bring atonement for their sin. In order for their sin to be paid for, in the Old Testament Israel, someone... Something had to die. And in this case, it was a spotless lamb, a burnt offering. It was brought before the priest and they would sacrifice it. And for us, we've had that spotless lamb die for us. We don't have to continue, continually come and offer burnt offerings before God because Jesus has become our burnt offering. He came as the spotless lamb and He, he laid down His life, the perfect lamb of God, took our place, took the penalty that we deserved. So just like for Israel, they had to have a lamb die for them. We need a lamb to die for us. And it was Jesus who, who was our lamb who died for us. Jesus came to pay for our sin. So God brings about, uh, God makes His name known through His powerful works. Number two, God brings about change through God-fearing leaders. God brings about change through God-fearing leaders. Verses 13 to 27. 
In verses 13 to 16, we find out that Moses is overwhelmed with handling all these disputes. What you need to remember is, or recognize is that in the ancient Near East, the, the, the leader of, the, of, of a given nation would be responsible not just to give direction, but actually to make choices in judicial matters. Now, in our country, we have three separate uh, offices. We have the office of the President and the office of the Congress and the office of the judges, okay? executive, legislative, and judi- judicial branches of the government. And primary reason for that is to, to keep to have a separation of powers so that there is a, a limited ability for corruption. But in the ancient Near East, what they would do is they would have one leader, usually the king. In this case, it was Moses. And he would be responsible to handle judicial matters. He would sit... Uh, many of these cities would have a leader who would sit at the gate, and they would have things. They would have uh, uh, problems come to them, and they'd have to make a choice based on our laws. This is how I'm going to respond. To see what this look, looks like, look at verse 16 with me. Moses is telling Jethro how this works. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor, and I make known the statutes of God and His laws. So what we learn is that Moses is concerned about something good. He wants the people to understand and know God's law and to obey it. And so he works hard to make the right decisions. The problem was not that Moses was incapable of making the right decisions. Because Moses would apparently inquire of God for them when his dispute would come. He would pray to God, ask for wisdom, Seek what God has already told him and then respond. Apparently, Moses had been compiling a list of God's laws. Remember, the the bulk of God's laws are not going to come here until chapters 20 through 40 when God gives him the Ten Commandments and another uh, several hundred on top of that. The problem really was, as Jethro recognized, was that there was a backlog of cases. And we know in our country that justice delayed is justice denied. And that's exactly what was happening happening for Israel. Notice how long these these cases were were taking to get solved. Verse 14. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Can you imagine? Two million people plus wandering around in the wilderness and having issues over land and animals. Like, who owns these things? What happens with this? My neighbor did this to me. How are we supposed to respond to this? We need to go to someone and ask for wisdom. So they go to Moses. You've got probably hundreds and thousands of cases and people lined up all day waiting for Moses to talk to them. Moses is handling all of them as best as he can, but obviously people are having to be turned away because they, there's not enough time in the day for Moses to handle all of these cases. From dawn until dusk, he is working on trying to give them solutions. And so Jethro recognizes the problem and he offers a solution in verses 17 to 23. First, he diagnoses the problem, and that is that, that these people are actually not getting help. There are a load of people who are not getting their disputes settled. And the other problem is Moses is wearing out. Look at verse 18. 
you will surely wear out. Okay, So both you, Moses, you're going to wear out because you don't have enough hours in a day to handle all this and the stress that goes along with it. And the people are going to wear out because they're waiting in line. And I can imagine that what's happening is people are waiting in line. That more disputes arise because they want to get their things settled first. And so now they have something else to, to come before Moses about. Jethro's solution uh, actually helps both groups or both, both uh, categories of people. Moses, the leader, and the people. It's going to help Moses by reducing his workload and it's going to help the people by actually allowing them to get their cases settled. And as we read, we saw that, that the way to do it is to, to choose and train leaders who would be able to help. So set up sort of a circuit court sort of uh, situation. So that you have godly, able-bodied people. Notice that's a critical component. Verse 21, Furthermore, you shall select out all of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. What kind of judges are the worst kind to have, right? The ones who are ungodly and they don't care about God's desires. They're corrupt. They're looking for money, for handouts, right? For bribes. Those are the worst kind of judges. God says the best kind of judges are those who are actually men of character. So choose out for you men of character who are going to be able to understand God's law and be able to apply it to these specific situations. So you set up this this uh, this system. Make sure that you're 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 very careful on the selection process because that is important. And then let them judge the minor cases. Let them judge the things that that are that are easier for a person to judge who doesn't have a lot of experience in that, and who just recognizes the the um, the right and wrong of a situation. But in the bigger situations, the major disputes, the ones that they can't handle, allow them to come to you, the Supreme Court, so to speak. Okay? And then we'll be able to not only reduce your workload, Moses, but you're going to be able to see that all of these disputes are actually settled. And this is going to be important for Israel down the road because Israel is starting to become an established nation and they needed some sort of a system that would help uh, get these problems solved. So, if God is going to be worshipped as He ought, then then we need to know about His powerful acts of deliverance. And we also need proper organization. So, let's try to apply that to our church here. If, if God is going to be worshipped as He ought in our church, we need to understand and remember God's powerful works. We need to learn about them and let others know about them. And we also need proper organization. So let me take the second one first. If God is going to be worshipped properly, we need proper organization. Aren't you thankful that God has called and gifted men to lead in the church? Do you realize that God never designed for the church to be run by one person? Yes, He has set it up where there is an overseer, one who has responsibility to oversee every area of the church, but the load of the work and the responsibility that, that, that is required needs to be shared by more than one person. When I think about this principle from Exodus 18. I think about uh, Acts chapter 8. 
and how the apostles were working hard to care for the needs of the whole church. They were equipped and responsible for caring for the needs of the church. But at some point, as the church was getting larger and larger, at one point 5,000 people and more, people were being added daily, Acts tells us, there are going to be some kinds of disputes within the church, and that's exactly what happens. There are going to be challenges. Just like at Mount Sinai, there's people that are feeling neglected here. And apostles in Acts 6 were feeling overwhelmed. But you know what God made clear to the apostles? That their primary responsibility was to pray and to preach. It wasn't that caring for widows, that was a specific dispute that was a problem. It wasn't that that was unimportant. Like, you know, we don't really care about the widows. We're just going to preach really hard. That wasn't unimportant. The point was that God had equipped them to do something else. That is, the apostles. They were supposed to preach and to pray. And this is what they say. We will not neglect the ministry of the Word in order to help these widows. Sounds pretty uncaring, doesn't it? But actually they recognize their role within the church and that we do want to see these widows cared for. And that's why God told them, the Spirit told them, choose from among you seven godly men who will who are led by the Spirit. Again, we see this idea of the importance of having a man of character in this sort of position to be able to care for these widows. Ministry in the church is not a one-man show. It is a responsibility that needs to be shared by godly men. And that's why God has called for there to be both a pastor and deacons. But not only that, we know that every single individual, every single person, as Aaron uh, taught us on Sunday night, needs to recognize their responsibility to come to the body and be a provider and not just a consumer. We know that because of Ephesians 4, which says that we must speak the truth to one another in love. And Hebrews 10 that tells us that we must consider how we can provoke one another to love and good works. That's not talking to the leadership there. That's talking to every single member. How can we provoke one another to love and good works? You see, God has equipped each one of you who is a member of this church with various gifts that need to be used to serve the needs of the body. And I'm here to help you to be able to use those gifts to minister to the body. And you ought to be praying for God to give you opportunities and to, to help uh, expose your gifts in a way that would be helpful for the needs of, of supplying for the needs of the body. That's what a body does. We have all these different body parts and they all have different functions, but they all contribute to the needs that the body has. And so you may not be the eye or the nose or the ear, but the whole body can't be the nose or the the eye or the ear. Every part of the body is essential. And so if God is going to be worshipped, we need proper organization. And then back to the first point in Exodus, but our second point in application. If God is going to be worshipped properly, we need to consider His powerful acts of deliverance. We need to consider His powerful acts of deliverance. God deserves and demands to be worshipped because, like Jethro recognized, He is the God of all gods. And therefore, 
He seeks to make His powerful acts of deliverance known to all people. He wants everyone to know what great acts He's done, specifically what, what He's done with Christ. And so the most powerful act of deliverance that God wants people to know is what He accomplished at the cross. And what you'll notice is that as I explain to you this great news, I'm not going to leave out the hardship. The, the difficult parts of the Gospel because I think those things actually highlight God's mercy. God created every single one of you to worship Him. Do you realize that? But we, like our father Adam, have all rebelled against His authority. We have committed high treason against the King of the universe. We turned our own way. We turned away from His rule. We rejected His command. The Bible says that we've all done this. There is none who is righteous, not even one. Not any person in this room, including myself, is righteous. We all have turned away from God. And the fact that we have sinned against the highest being means that our crime is most serious. Right? It would be one thing if, if you punched your boss in the face. You could say, face some serious charges. You would probably lose your job. Okay? Unless your boss is a boxing manager or something. Okay, but, but if you punched your boss in the face, that would be one thing. It would be another thing if you punched Governor Rick Snyder in the face. You'd face some more serious charges than just your boss. But what would happen if you punched the President of the United States in the face? You think they just got, well, you know, you're going to lose your job. Now, that's a serious crime because it's done against a higher office. And what I'm telling you is that you have, with your sin, committed the most serious crime that could possibly be committed because it's committed against the highest office. And we like to minimize our sin and say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. But, but every single sin that we commit is a sin against the holy God the King of all the universe. And so we don't commit our sin against the mayor of our town or the governor of our state or the President of the United States. We commit every single one of our sins against the King of the universe. And, and we may think that our sins are not that serious. You know, I know lots of people who have committed more sins than, than I have. But have you ever considered that your sin actually resulted in the murder of our Lord? My sin actually resulted in the murder of Jesus Christ? Think about it. I mean, if Jesus lived a perfect life, why would He have to die? We understand that death is a part of being a human. And that death comes as a result of sin. That all people will die. But why did Jesus have to die? Right? Did He do anything to deserve death? And the answer is, and here's the beauty of the great news about Jesus and about what God has provided for us. And that is that He died to pay for your sin. He died to pay for my sin. Our sin is serious and it demands that we spend an eternity in hell. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And do you realize that there's nothing that we can do on our own to appease God's wrath? I mean, our good works are not enough to offset what we've done to God. If we think our good works are enough, like maybe, you know, if God looks at 
all the good things I've done, then he'll, he'll be okay with that. He'll kind of minimize some of the, the bad things I've done. If we think that, then we are deceived. I mean, think about if, if a person were on trial for murdering your father, and the defense attorney, he had to agree that that, that man murdered your father. And so instead of trying to defend that man, the murderer, instead he brings evidence that shows all the good things that the murderer has done. See, but have you seen all this community service he's done? You see how good he is to his family? You see all these great things that he's done in the past? I mean, what kind of judge would look at that evidence and say, okay, here's the charge of murder. It's clear that he's done it. But he has done quite a few good things. And I have to admit that that outweighs this murder charge. And so I'm going to let him free. What would we think of a judge like that? And we would have to say that he's a corrupt judge, right? You can't just ignore all the evidence. And that's how God looks at us, frankly. That's how God looks at me. He says, I can't ignore your sin just because you've done a lot of good things. Your sins have to be paid for. There has to be a penalty for your sin. And so we need something else. Not our goodness. We need the goodness of someone else. We need a substitution for our payment. Someone needs to take our payment for us. And we need also an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us. We need someone to stand in our place. We need someone to die for our sins. But it can't be our brother or our friend because they would be an imperfect sacrifice. You realize if you try to die for your spouse, that wouldn't help you. That wouldn't help them. We need someone who is a spotless sacrifice which God demanded. We need a perfect human being to die for us. And that's why Jesus came. You see, Jesus is fully God, and yet He's fully man. And as man, He's able to die for us. And friends, that is the beauty of what God has done for us. He came to rescue you from the penalty of your sin that you couldn't rescue yourself from. You know, we think that that you know coming to God is a lot like just a rope just a rope tied to a huge rock on the shore and our job is just pull ourselves in. You know what the Bible calls us before we come to Christ? It calls us dead. It's not that we can actually grab onto the rope. We're out there in the middle of the water floating. We need someone to impart life to us. The only way that happens is when God's Spirit comes and regenerates a person. When He gives them spiritual life from being spiritually dead. And so God does this great work. He brings and, and allows for this penalty to be paid. He exonerates you from the sin that you deserve to pay for. But not only that, could you imagine... If, if that murderer of your father was exonerated, that'd be one thing. But it's another thing to, to make them a part of a royal family. Right? It'd be one thing if someone committed a, a high treason against the king and he was exonerated. Well, he'd go back to his life of service. But here's what God does. Not only does He exonerate us from our sin, but He brings us into His family. And that's because when God looks at us, He sees us as one of His own. As His own son. Jesus not only paid for your sin, but He lived a perfect life so that His righteousness could be applied to your account. And the way that you have this credited to your account, the way that you have this payment made for you by Jesus and to receive this righteousness, to join into His family, 
is to do what Jethro did. And that is to confess that God is Lord of all. And to trust in His promised Redeemer. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then later he says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved. The Gospel is about the death of Christ, but it's not only about that. It's about His resurrection. You know that Jesus is not in the grave anymore? How effective would it be if if we served a dead Savior? If we serve a living Savior, He is resurrected. He is alive. He sits at the place of prominence at God's throne in heaven. And He is constantly praying for His people. And He promises to come back to get all those who trust in Him and to resurrect all those who have died trusting in Him. Friends, that is why God made us. He made us to worship Him. Yet we have rejected Him. And even though we have rejected Him, God still pursued us by offering us this substitution in Jesus Christ, His life for ours. He became death so that we could have life. God is calling you to turn from your sins today and to believe that Jesus Christ is alone is enough to satisfy the wrath of God against your sin. And this is the greatest act of God's deliverance. Worship starts here. If you come here today and you wanted to worship, you can't worship until you accept that God has delivered you from, from your sin through the payment of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we need to consider if we're going to worship God properly. We need proper organization, but before that, we really need to recognize His great acts of deliverance and respond to them. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the great news about Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. Lord, where would we be apart from His finished work on the cross? It's hard for us to imagine that that He, being God, would, would die for us. Even though He did not deserve it. But Lord, that highlights Your love for us. You'd be willing to sacrifice Your greatest possession so that we could be a part of Your family. And Lord, we recognize there's nothing in ourselves to deserve salvation from our sins. So we look to You for grace. We, we look to You for change. And we pray that if there's anyone here who needs to be reminded about that and praise You more fervently for that, that You would enliven their hearts today. Lord, if there's someone here who has not trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, we pray that You would help them to recognize their need to turn and trust in, in You alone and in, in the promised Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.